0: For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Father, again, we thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word has been given to us and that your spirit has illumined our minds to understand. Father, we thank you that it is so clear that the Bible is was not written by just 40 men, but those 40 men were moved by the Holy Spirit. That it's your spirit is truly the author, that he is omniscient, omnipotent, that he's all-powerful, and that the Trinity will indeed accomplish what this book says. And as we study prophecy today, prophecy that was 200 years in the future, and then actually thousands of years uh, to be in the future, that we know that these statements, these truths will come to pass. it's going to take us all the way up to when Jesus Christ returns. And we ask that you would give us understanding, not only into just understanding the text, but then how does it apply? Again, thank you that in a world that is chaotic and out of control, we know that everything is under control from your perspective. And that everything is moving to a predetermined conclusion. Help us to take confidence in that, to have hope, to have peace, just to know that you are accomplishing your purposes and that we are part of that. We ask for your wisdom. We also ask for your conviction that in areas we need to change, that we would, so that we might honor and glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. If you'd like to turn to Daniel chapter eight, if you have a bulletin, you might want to take out the outline. It's—I'll say this: this is one of the hardest passages, hardest chapters of the Bible to to actually interpret to come to a a clear understanding. With the time, we may not even get through this, and we may actually just decide to go on to chapter 9 next week, and knowing that we'll come back to it. Because the end of it, he's talking about the Antichrist, and if we end up not getting to the end of it, the Antichrist appears in chapter 9 as well. So we may do that, We'll, we'll see. Leon Morris, a great expositor, said this of interpreting prophecy. He said, quote, The valid principle of interpreting uh, prophecy is to accept the plain sense of the text unless there is a good reason to adopt some other meaning. The the first principle is this, the plain sense. And you're going to hear a lot in the next few weeks just in passing, but again, as we approach prophecy, that we don't want to approach prophecy from a symbolic point of view. In other words, looking and seeing everything as symbolism, if in reality the the writers wanted us to see it literally. In fact, Charles Ryrie also made a comment on this. In one of his little books on prophecy, he gave this statement. He said, first and foremost, the all-important ground rule for studying prophecy is to interpret it literally. Interpret prophecy literally. Some people do not like the word literal, since it seems to preclude anything symbolic. Perhaps the word should be plain or normal instead of literal. But the point is this. We recognize that the Bible does, does use symbols and figures of speeches. We're not saying, when I say the word normal or, or literal, we're not saying that it doesn't have symbols. You're going to see a lot of symbols today. Or even figures of speech. When Jesus said, I am the door... You didn't, you didn't picture him on hinges, did you? Again, figures of speech and symbols are also part of the process of conveying literal truth. However, he goes on and says, in recognizing this, we are not saying that the Bible should be interpret, interpreted symbolically. Rather, we are saying that its it symbols and figures of speech must be translated into literal truth. Do you see the difference there? You take a symbol, you take something, and you say, okay, there's a truth. I am the door. Oh, you're the entrance. You have to pass through Christ. You have, to, you have to be saved. What Christ did on the cross is how a person gets saved. I am the door. See, the symbol, the figure of speech must be translated into a literal truth in order for us to clearly understand the message God wants to convey. Rari ends by saying, but you may say, how can a symbol be interpreted literally? Actually, how else could it be understood? If a symbol does not represent an actual literal truth, then it must be a symbol of another symbol, and the process goes on and on and becomes completely meaningless. Somewhere along the line, a symbol must represent something literal. That is why we insist that symbols and figures of speech must be understood plainly, or normally, or as I said earlier, literally. I I think that's very, very helpful. Because again, some have looked at prophecy, which is upwards to almost a quarter to a third of the entire scriptures, and said, that's symbolic. You just have to interpret it symbolically. And in doing that, you can go symbol to symbol to symbol, and it becomes, as he said, meaningless. And yet, did God write and allow men to write the book so that it would be meaningless? Now think about how foolish that is. Or is God given a, has given, God given us the word of God and he wants us to get it right? He wants us to understand it. And it has meaning because even the symbols and figures of speech point to a literal truth. Now again, I'm not saying that we're always going to get all the literal truth. I mean, it points to something that we as finite beings may not be able to understand at the moment but understand that when it comes to prophecy you want to have a normal literal plain approach in other words god is seeking to communicate to us we have to think of it that way otherwise you just it's basically just a throw the dice and however you you know your interpretation is as good as the next guys that is not correct that is not correct well let's get into daniel Again, chapters 1 through 6 is more of a biographical, historical. In fact, when you start out in chapter 1, Daniel's probably 14, 15, 16 years old. He's taken off into captivity. By the time you get to chapter 6, he's an old man. And you say, how do you characterize an old man? I'm saying he's close to 90. Okay? He's close to 90. Now, chapter 7 is getting into specific prophecy. And we looked at... By the way, I was thinking about this. We, uh, before I went on my, uh, our trip, I was in Daniel. And then when I came back from the trip, trip, we looked at Jonah chapter 1 and Jonah chapter 3 and 4 and five or 4. <laughs> there's no 5. Um, and then we got into uh, Resurrection Sunday, and so we looked at Isaiah 53. So we haven't really... We have not been to a Daniel... Uh, studying Daniel for about six or seven weeks. So, again, we need a little bit of review. Chapters 1 through 6 is practical, it's narrative, it's biographical. By the time he ends up in the lion's den, he's close to 90, if he isn't 90 already. Chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 are prophetic. By the way, he touches on prophecy in chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but primarily the prophetic part of the book is Daniel 7 through 12. And you say, why did he give all the biographical? I think part of the reason, one of the reasons was because he showed the character of the man who was writing the book in chapters 1 through 6. Now, in chapter 7, if you're there, it says in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. First year. That's interesting because in chapter 5, it says Belshazzar the king made a great feast. And that was at the end of his reign. Actually, if you, if you look at it this way, chapter 7 is, I think, nine years before. It's during the reign of Belshazzar, his first year. By the time you get to chapter 5, that's the last year of his reign. Because that's when Medo-Persia uh, conquers Babylon. You remember that, the handwriting on the wall. So what he did is he, he gave you historical 1 through 6... And then, chapter 7, he takes you back to something that Daniel had received as far as a vision. And chapter 8 is the same thing. You'll see in chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar. So, what did Daniel just do? He actually took you back 12 years. Okay, he took you back to, I think it was 551. Okay, so in the third year is 551. Twelve years later is when the handwriting on the wall, which is chapter 5. That's why it would get confusing. If you just read Daniel sequentially, chronologically, you'd say, well, who's this Belshazzar? He's already died, you know, when the Babylon, uh, when Medo-Persia came in. Well, no, Daniel is bringing us back and sharing what happened during the reign of Belshazzar in his third year, chapter 8. There's another interesting thing Uh, in in Daniel chapter 2 verse 4. At chapter 2 verse 4 to the end of chapter 7, he actually writes Aramaic. Now think about this. The first chapter up to chapter 2 verse 3 is in Hebrew. Then all of a sudden the book of Daniel takes a turn as far as the, the language that it's written in. It's written in Aramaic. But then, starting in chapter 8, verse 1, which is the passage we're going to be in today, he, he starts writing back in Hebrew. As one man said, this portion of Scripture was, again, in Aramaic, the language of Babylon, because of the content that this section deals primarily with, and that is the Gentile world powers. In fact, if you, if you um, just put... I have a couple uh, slides... Um, can that, they? Yeah, I need to learn how to do this better. Um, but anyways, if you remember, uh, Daniel, chapter, um, Daniel chapter 2 is the image. Remember the image? And you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, gold, silver, bronze, iron, and then the feet of clay, which is the, uh, the coming world empire, you know, the Antichrist, the final, the final world empire that is made up of the Roman Empire. We call it the revived Roman Empire. But again, you have these uh, great nations. Babylon then is overcome by Medo-Persian. That Again, the day is 539. the uh, Handwriting on the wall when Belshazzar and, and they come in and destroyed Babylon in one night. Then after, after the silver, referring to the Medo-Persians, then you have the Greco-Macedonian, uh, which is Alexander the Great. And then it goes down to Roman. Uh, the Roman Empire. How do I do this? Can I do this? Oh, I can do it but I can't go back. I hate that. I don't, I can't. I know, I know, I know. Anyways, if you get to chapter 7, you now picture, whereas Nebuchadnezzar pictured, you know, his dream, which had to be interpreted by Daniel, was of an image, something that really was impressive. This is how God looks at the same uh, world empires. They're a lion, a bear, leopard, and this unrecognizable, powerful, but yet brutal beast. And you might say, what's the difference? Remember, the difference is this. Man may look at these kingdoms as impressive. God looks at them as brute beasts. And what do you do with brute beasts? You destroy them. You know, you don't, you don't want to have this thing as a pet. You know, or this thing. So, so Daniel 2 is the statue. Daniel 7 is the beast. And the kings that are represented in Babylon, Medo, Greece, Rome. And today, we're going to be looking at Medo, Persia, and Greece. Because what, uh, what uh, Daniel does, God does through the dream, in giving him understanding, is he actually takes us back. So he's already gone through Daniel 2, gone through Daniel 7, and each one of these are, are basically the entire, um, entire view of... Gentile powers over Jerusalem. And the focus of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 is on the Gentiles. So what does he do? He gives us a complete overview twice as far as these world powers. And in chapter 7, right here is where Aramaic ends. Because now the the narrative changes as to why I did it. It's no longer, the focus is no longer going to be on the Gentiles. And for the rest of the book, it's written in Hebrew. Because the focus is actually going to be on the Jewish people. How those Gentile nations relate to the Jewish people. So as you enter chapter 8, the language reverts back to Hebrew. And again, I'll just read it. The reason for this is that there is a tremendous change in the emphasis... Chapter eight on Daniel uh, will be speaking about the times of the Gentiles, but only as it relates to the nation Israel. By the way, Israel is the focal point of history. Do we realize that? No wonder CNN and Fox News and MSNBC and every—I mean, you know, this little state that's what has less territory than New Jersey is always in the news because it's the focal point. It is the focal point of not only this earth, it's the focal point of this world history. And you say, why? Because God said, I have chosen it for a specific purpose, and Satan hates that. (laughs) You really want to get right down to the brass tacks. So chapter 8, Daniel backtracks in chronology to a little bit uh, to give us the detail of Gentile world domination as it relates to Israel, which again, you could call it the nerve center of the world. So again, chapter 7 is about the times of the Gentiles, but only as it pertains to them as a nation. Chapter 8, it's talking about two specific uh, kingdoms, Medo-Persia and Greece. That's what we'll look at today, represented by a ram and a goat. By the way, it's interesting, Medo-Persia uh, was the only of the, three, of the four, it was the only uh, kingdom that actually treated the Jews with any type of allowed them to have any type of peace. It was Medo-Persia that actually let them go back to their land. When it came to Greece, they were uh, suffered tremendously under the Greek rule. So again, that's how it's presented. Now, verse 1, the third year, that sets it at 551 B.C. That's again 12 years earlier than the end of chapter 5, which is again the handwriting on the wall. But he says this, A vision appeared to me, even to me. A vision appeared to me. me, To me. That's how it says. To me. Like emphatic. Can you believe it? God has given me understanding in the, in the events of, of world history. To me, Daniel, after the one that appeared to me the first time, he's referring to chapter 7, verse 2. So I'm in Daniel chapter 8, verse 2. I saw in the vision, and it so happened while I was looking, that I was in Shushan or some of your versions might be Susa, S-U-S-S-A. Which is, by the way, let me show you where Susa is. Uh, I can do this, I think. Yeah. Now, if you look at, um, right here's Babylon. It's about 250 miles east. Okay, east. In fact, if you want to see it a little bit. I have to do this because I have to hit that right there. (laughs) Anyways, if Babylon's over here, Susa is right here, uh, Euphrates and all that, okay? But the point is, it's, it's, not to the, it's not going towards Jerusalem, it's on the other side. And, and actually, most scholars think that at this time, when, when Daniel gets this information, this, this, um, this dream, this vision, excuse me, vision, that Babylon wasn't controlling Susa. It's like, well, wh- why is he at Susa? In fact, probably uh, Medo-Persians were in control of this particular part of the world at this particular time when this um, vision happened. So I was in Shusha, Susa, Susa, uh, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, and I saw in the vision that I was at the river Euphrates. So it's right there. Yeah, Done. You saw it. Uh, so I, Susa. Because Susa is going to become the capital of Medo-Persia 12 years later. In fact, when Nehemiah is sent back, this is what it says in Nehemiah 1 verse 1. Nehemiah, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is the palace with King Artaxerxes. Or like Esther. Remember, Esther is during the same time with the Medo-Persians. It says this, King Ahasuerus sat on the throne of his kingdom, which was at Susa, the citadel. See? So you say, well, why, was, why did God allow him to be at Susa? Because that's saying, listen, even though Babylon right now is in control, 12 more years from now, the capital is not going to be Babylon. It's going to be Susa. That's going to be the citadel. That's going to be where the palace is at. So even in the first verse, two verses, you see prophecy going to be fulfilled. He's at Susa, and he sees something. Let's look at the revelation and the significance. He says, uh, "Then I lifted up my eyes, verse uh, three, and I saw, in the, uh, and I saw, and there standing beside the river, a ram." By the way, I think I'm just going to read this through because I can come comment. And I think we can get it. You're going to see, you're going to see two different animals, and then a little horn. You're going to see two different things happening. There's a ram and a, there's a ram and a goat. Those are the two animals. And then you're going to see the little horn, which is a different little horn than, than chapter 7. And these animals, remember these beasts, represent kingdoms. By the way, before the beast that was represented by Medo-Persia was what? A bear. And the beast that was represented, representative of Greece was a leper. But now the representations change. It's going to be a ram and a goat. So I lifted up my eyes and I saw and there standing by the river was a ram, which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And what he's referring to is Persia. That's exactly what happened. Medo became the, the, the power, but then Medo, uh, then Persia combined with Me- the Medes, but Persia became higher. They became the dominant force, actually in the Medo-Persian Empire, which is, again, part of Iran it was the Persians that were the stronger force. By the way, the same thing happened with the, uh, the bear. Remember, the bear had two shoulders, but one was higher. And he's referring to the fact that the second one, the, the Persians were going to be the stronger of the two, the two that were in, uh, made up this kingdom. So he said two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last, just like Persia did. And I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward. Did I have another one? Oh, shouldn't do that. Well, you're going to see him in a second. Um, why? Because that's exactly what Persia did. They, they didn't push east. They pushed west, north, and then south so that no animal could withstand him, nor was there anything that could deliver from his hand. But he did according to his will and became great. And they, they were a great nation for about 200 years. And as I, and as I was considering... By the way, when it comes to prophecy and getting understanding from God, and as I was considering, this is a very important principle. We need to consider. When did it go off? Um, He had to consider. He didn't quite understand. And as I was considering, suddenly a male goat came from the west. By the way, he didn't come from the east. Everything up to this point has been happening like in Babylon and then uh, Medo-Persia. Coming from... But here... The male goat was coming from the west across the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. What does he mean by without touching the ground? Speed. And if there's anything that characterized the Greek empire, it was speed. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. Verse 6, And he came to the ram that had two horns. Here, now I can... Can I do it? He did something. See, there's the ram which represents Medo-Persian. This is the goat, represents Greek. And and the goat had a... And then he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing beside the river and ran at him with a furious power. And I saw with him confronting the ram and he moved with rage against him and attacked the ram and broke his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to withstand him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled. I mean, those are pretty graphic... And that's exactly what the Greek Empire did with Medo-Persia. They just destroyed them. There was three different conflicts, and by the end, Persia had nothing. Look at this, but verse 8, Therefore the male goat grew very great, but when he became strong, and now he's talking about a person, the large horn was broken, and in place of it there was four notable ones, little horns, that came up towards the four winds of the heaven. And, and that's actually what happened. We'll see that in a moment. Now, what is he doing? He's saying, listen, and this is the whole point. All right, Israel, you know, right now you're in captivity because remember, this is 12 years before they even get out of captivity. And Daniel's given this vision, and the vision is this. Yes, there are world powers that are in control, even in control of Israel and Jerusalem. But again, the vision is given to say, listen, take comfort be encouraged, have hope, have peace, because there's going to even be some other kingdoms that come, but when it's all said and done, God reigns. By the way, I am so glad I'm teaching through Daniel right now, because like I have said before, this world is breaking apart. Aren't you glad that God reigns? Okay, and so this happened exactly like like it was presented symbolically. The ram is Persia, and Medes and Persians, and the goat is Greece. Look at verse, um, the next verse, 9. Then there's a little horn. And out of that one of them, in other words, remember the, 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 uh, the, the horn broke, the large horn broke in verse 8, little ones came out of it. But then out of the, out of the four, verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, and toward the glorious land, that'd be Jerusalem. And it grew up to the hosts of heaven and cast down some of the hosts and some of the stars of the ground and trampled on them. But now he kind of starts characterizing, verse 11, and he exalted himself. This little horn exalted himself. By the way, this is not the Antichrist. This is Antichrist Epiphanes. He He was a type of the Antichrist. And he did exactly this. He exalted himself as high as the prince of the host. And by him, the daily sacrifices were taken away. and the place of the sanctuary, was cast down because of the transgression. An army was given over to the horn to oppose the daily sacrifices. And you can go read on and on and on. And it's all going to end, verse 14, in 2,300 days. And that's exactly what happened. What happened was, well, we need to get to the interpretation. I'm getting ahead of myself. And then you'll say, well, you already said that. Just, just remember this, verses 3 to 8 is about two kingdoms that God also is going to wipe off the face of the earth when it's all said and done. But verses 9 to 14 are talking about an ant, a type of antichrist, Antichrist Epiphanes. He's not the final antichrist, but he, but he is definitely a picture of the final antichrist. Look at verse 15. Then it happened when I, Daniel, was seen, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. By the way, I believe that is Jesus Christ. That I cannot prove, but I believe it. I think we also saw Jesus Christ in the fiery furnace. Remember it said, we threw three in, but now there's a fourth, like the Son of God. Notice what he says. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the eulah. I think it's coming from this appearance of a man who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Boy, am I thankful that when God gives us a prophecy, he also many times says, now make it known as to what we're talking about. Verse 17, so he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. That's a good response, by the way, when you get truth. <laughs> afraid and fell on his face. I think it was John... Whitcomb or Tyndale, one of the two. He literally studied the Bible on his knees every day out of reverence for God. I don't have to have that. But again, that's how he, he fell on his faith. <clears throat> but he said to me, verse 17, Understand, on a man that the vision refers to the time of the end. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and stood, and he stood me upright. And he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation. For at an appointed time, the end shall be. And he uses the word end. Now, that's important. Verse 17 and 19, he, he, he uses the word end, which I believe, I believe this is what he had very specifically. I'm going to show you a glimpse of what's going to happen between now, 12 years before Babylon is destroyed, and to the time of the, uh, the type of Antichrist, Antiochus Epiphanies. But the end is, is also going to be pictured. In other words, it's, there's also going to be an application, and you're going to see the real Antichrist that is yet future. Because when Jesus Christ came to this earth, that wasn't the end. When he comes back to this earth a second time in the second coming, that's the end. So he's saying, listen, this this vision is going to entail a number of things. It's going to really give you a lot of information about right now, but also in the very end. In verse 20, it actually gives us the interpretation of some of what I've been telling you about the ram. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of Meda and Persia. Oh, that's good. (laughs) See, you might have just thought a few moments ago, well, how do you know the ram is the Medo-Persian? Well, he just said it. He wants to just get it straight. Again, reminiscent of the bear with the one side raised up. The ram that Daniel saw had one horn more prominent than the other, longer emerging after, long emerging after the other shorter one. And again, that's exactly what happened with Medes came into power, Persia came alongside them in a union, and Persia became the stronger. So in history, by the way, this prophecy is so specific that a lot of liberal interpreters say, there is absolutely no way this could be prophecy, this has to be history. And what they try to do is say, Daniel must have not been writing chapter 7 and 8. What he did was, it was a pseudo-Daniel that writ, wrote 300 years later, looking back over history. Because it was so specific. That liberal people said, it cannot be prophecy. There's just no way. I mean, because it's, it is so specifically, um, you know, come to pass. But again, th- this, is, this is the meaning how about verse 21? Let's see the male goat. The male goat is the kingdom of Greece. Now, this is before Greece is even in power. In fact, hundreds of years before Greece is in power. And the large horn that is between its eyes is its first king, which again, we know from history is Alexander the Great. Now, did you see what he's just doing there? He's, Daniel is, you know, writing down 12 years, 12 years before, you know, even Babylon is destroyed, and now God is telling him, well, the next kingdom is going to be Medo-Persia. The second and the next one after that is going to be Greece. And the, and the large horn represents the first king. And this is what's going to happen to the first king. I like how uh, David Jeremiah, he said, da- uh, J- Jeremiah said, David Jeremiah, the preacher, said, um, you know, there are at least five specific things that are, just, that are accomplished even in just this passage of prophecy fulfilled. The first is this, the identification of the goat. That's obvious, we've already gone through it. By the way, it's interesting that the first Greek colony was established by an oracle. Now again, this is mysticism, mystical. This is how, how um, their, um, their tradition was passed down generation to generation. But this is what their, their tradition said. That it was an oracle that, that sent a goat... For, to, to be a guide to build the city. And the goat came to the region of Greece, and in the gratitude for the goats leading them into the right direction, they called the city Aegea, which means the goat city. So as Daniel was writing this down, Greece is starting to be formed, and the formation of that city was the goat city. I wonder why, you see why they used the, God used the goat as the symbol of Greece. In fact, that's where we get the name Aegean Sea, which is the Goat Sea. You know, if you look at where Paul traveled, did much of his traveling in Philippi's up here in Thessalonica and all that, that's the Aegean Sea, the Goat Sea. So again, the male goat came from the west. By the way, he did come from the west. If I had the picture up here, Persia's here, Greece is over here. It's on the other side in the middle of the Mediterranean. And he's without touching the ground. And it's interesting that, that uh, I, I believe it was three years. It took three years for Greece to destroy Medo-Persia. That's how fast it was. And literally 12 years to, to uh, gain the entire known world at that time. That's how quick Alexander the Great conquered. So we know the identification of the goat. In verse, the second part of verse 5, the notable horn between his eyes. This was, again, Alexander the Great. His mother told Alexander that his father came from Hercules. And so, this young boy, as he's growing up, basically wanted to do a Herculean event, as it were. And when he got, and basically, his father, Philip of Macedon, he ended up getting murdered. But he told his son, you know what? There's not enough around here to really basically keep you occupied. In other words, there's not enough to conquer right here. You need to get yourself another army and go conquer more. And he listened to his dad, and with just a few thousand men, again, conquered the known world. Speed, it was unprecedented speed that he conquered Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, and Mesopotamia. Look at verse 7. And I saw him confront the ram. And that word is, and broke, It it literally intense. He just shattered Medo-Persia. And like I said in 3 years he did do that. That's another part of prophecy that's been fulfilled. That's the third part. We know the the kingdom, we know the the first king and now how he did it. He, they say he only had 35,000 troops. Now Persia when they conquered had 2 million. 35,000. What he did is hit and ran, hit and ran. But look at verse 8. Something's going to happen to the the that that uh, horn. Therefore, the male goat grew very great. But when the when he became strong, the large horn was broken. That's the fourth prophecy fulfilled. What do you mean broken? Well, he conquered. Part of part of the problem was in conquering. His men were getting tired, and he was getting bored. He got depressed. He actually got depressed because there was nothing else to conquer. He went all the way to India, and he was like, you know. And he turned heavily to drink alcohol. And by 323, at the age of 33, Alexander died from a fever brought on by malaria and complications from alcoholism. In other words, at the very height of his power, just 33 years old, he died drunk and depressed. He was a broken man. He could conquer worlds. He couldn't conquer himself. That's exactly what he's saying in verse 8 when it says he became strong and the large horn was broken. So what happened? He had all this territory, but no leader. By the way, let me divert for one more moment. There was a story that 200 years before Alexander died, excuse me, 200 years before Alexander died, God again described in the minutest detail exactly how history was going to be written, right? Right? Now, the story goes like this, that this passage was told to Alexander by a Jewish priest. In fact, he kind of said it this way. He said, you've got to read this book of Daniel because you're in here. Now, Dan, Remember, in, in the timeline, um, Alexander the Great is here in the 300s. Daniel was written back in the 500s, 200 years before. It's said that Alexander read the prophecy and it was said that he got down on his knees and worshipped. However, he did not save himself from an early death, even though it was foretold him. In other words, he saw what was coming and he still went down the same path. At least that's that's how the story goes. By the way, God used ungodly men. God used Alexander. Two of the things that happened was because he conquered the 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 most of the known worlds, because this is how it happened. When Babylon conquered, they conquered about this much. Medo-Persia and then Alexander with Greece conquered this much. The known world. One of his things is he wanted everything connected. And if, if for you to connect, you have to have the same language. That was one of the things I, I noticed in India. You know, you go to this village and then you go up an hour away and they speak something different. I mean, let's get all on the same page. Let's speak English. That's God's language. <laughs> no, no. No, let's speak Hebrew. No, let's just speak English. Um, but the point is, is that he demanded his those he conquered speak Greek. We call it Koine Greek. Think about that. New Testament was written in Koine Greek. Every seminarian that's worth its salt teaches Koine Greek. What, what did he do? Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ, a conqueror who was an ungodly man that died at 33 of a drunkenness and depression, worked it perfectly into God's plan because because everyone knew Greek. When Paul went out to preach, he only had to know Greek, right? And the New Testament is written in Greek, Koine Greek, and it was all because Alexander the Great conquered and demanded those he conquered know Greek. Not only that, but he built many, many roads. The Romans are given credit for the roads, but actually uh, Alexander the Great started that whole process. He had extensive uh, road work. And he, they used, by the way, cement, not blacktop. But um, <laughs> Chris Blades always says, no, it's blacktop. Actually, you know what they used was Rock. You can go go there and walk the streets, and a lot of those streets are still there because they just used rock. But again, started with Alexander, continued with the Romans. Both of which, language and roads, helped the gospel to get out quickly once Jesus Christ died and the apostles went out. See, Alexander was a tool of God's sovereignty. Our Senate, our Congress, our President is a tool of God's sovereignty. Israel is a tool... Iran and North Korea as a tool. Do we really believe that? They're all tools. It's all going towards one end. It's not like, roll the dice, I wonder how it's going to end. It's already been predetermined how it's going to end. Now everything is just moving towards that. Look at verse 22, the meaning of the four horns. But see, the big horn was broken. Now as for the broken horn, and the four that stood up in its place, there was four kingdoms shall arise out of the nation. And if you have your outline, you see, I left, there was literally four... Generals, I think I left them in there, that actually took over for the, I mean, you know, replaced, uh, where do I see that? I don't see it. Yes. Oh, on the back, that's where it is, yeah. Yeah, look on the back, that's good too. We see Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, and those are the four generals Cassander, uh, you can see them. Seleucius, that's the one you got to remember, though. So again, you have all this. He dies, and exactly like Scripture said 200 years before, there's four uh, kingdoms shall arise out of that one nation. And that's exactly what happened. And like Cassandra took Macedonia and Greece, uh, Lysicumus took uh, Asia Minor, basically. Uh, Ptolemies took Egypt and Asia Minor, which was part of uh, Jerusalem. And the Seleucids took Syria and Israel. There was like a dividing line. If I understand it correctly. But Seleucius, Seleucius? Se- Seleucus? But, anyways, th- that's the main one right there. And it's only in the text because something happens with this, with, this, uh, with this divided kingdom. And now they're in four spots the north, the west, the south, and the east. And now something else happens in verse 9. And out of one of them came a little horn. Oh, brother, another horn. Horn shows power, but this is not the little horn that is found in chapter 7. That was Antichrist himself. This is another, I believe, symbolic representation of uh, a type of Antichrist. This little horn, and his name is Antichrist Epiphanes. Again, I see we're almost out of time, so I'm not going to carry on. But this guy, Epiphanes, you know what Epiphanes means? God manifested. In other words, visible God. He looked at himself as the visible God. That's quite an eagle. That is quite an eagle. But he comes out of the Seleucid dynasty. okay, And he's the great one, the illustrious one. By the way, his, his name means God manifested. But the, the Jews uh, changed the last couple vowels. And, and, and instead of saying the illustrious one, visible God... It it, it meant the madman. He was considered the madman. And you say, why? Well, he took 22,000 soldiers one time to Jerusalem, supposedly on a peace mission. And in doing that, he killed 80,000 men and took 40,000 women and children off to be slaves. It was very, very wicked. He absolutely hated the Jewish religion. And he wanted to wipe it out. In fact, he wanted to set up a Greek temple where the, 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 the Jewish temple stood. In fact, he set up the, the, the Greek god Zeus. Chriswell recounts this abomination. He took a pig, he killed it, and splashed the blood of an unclean animal, which was the pig, all over the Jewish temple. And then he said, you could not worship Jehovah you had to give sacrifice to Saturnurius, I think it was. In other words, one of the Greek gods. Now, this was during the time when you should be uh, uh, celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles and the Feast of Passover. He forbade all observance of Sabbath. In other words, he did everything he could. And, and by the way, he lived around 175, I think it was. So just a few years after, you know, 100 years after uh, Alexander the Great, you know, they went through all these divisions, and then out of the final division, there was another division, and there was another king, and finally you get to Antiochus Epiphanes, and he was absolutely hated. In fact, he uh, he forbade the institution of circumcision, but there was two mothers who were absolutely committed to doing what the Jewish Bible said, so they decided to circumcise their babies. And when he found out, what he did is he took the babies, slew them, put them on a rope around the mother's neck, and marched them up to a high point, and then threw them over to their death. It was just gruesome. So the Jews absolutely hated him. And so when it says in in the Bible, it was only going to be 2,300 days, what he was referring to is His reign of terror in Jerusalem as one of the Seleucid uh, rulers was only going to be 2,300 days, which is just shy of seven years, six and a half years. It lasted from September 6, 171 to December 25, 165. I only say that because it literally lasted 2,300 days. And then during this time... The, uh, there was a revolt going around, uh, going, coming up. And if you ever heard of the Maccabean revolt, have you ever heard of that? It was a Maccabean revolt. Originally started by the father, but then he died, and then his son Judas, and he became known as Judas the Hammer, the Maccabean Judas the Hammer. And what he did is he basically went up and took back Jerusalem from these pagan king. This, this pagan king. It's really quite an interesting story. It's not in Scripture, but that's what happened. And it, it said that the madman, this Antiquatus Epiphanes, ended up dying insane. In fact, he got some type of disease that not only made him insane, but it made him stink. <laughs> and it says at the very end that he couldn't even stand the smell of himself, and he died an insane, stinky man. <laughs> <laughs> I, I give you this because Jesus says when you're the abomination of desolation when Daniel speaks of the abomination and desolation, and, and, and you actually read about that in Daniel 11 and 12, but this is a type, because in the end, the Antichrist goes into the temple and sets himself up as God. So this man is a type of the Antichrist. But look at verse 24, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. Why? Because I think 24 and 25 are actually looking ahead now to, to the, the final Antichrist. Because the final Antichrist is going to be empowered by Satan. Verse twenty five, and he shall rise, even rise against the prince of princes. Because the final Antichrist says, I am God. And again, we would not have we're totally out of time, so we can't. But I think you see both Antiochus and Epiphanes, which happened in the one seventy five reign BC and then I think there's also indication that this is also talking about the final Antichrist. And if you have your little outline there, that's what that means at the very end and bottom. Antichrist, epiphanies, and then it goes over the church to the real Antichrist. The final Antichrist, I think, is what's happening in, in Daniel chapter 8 is that. Now look at what Daniel said, and then we'll close. Verse 26, this was told of Daniel and the vision in the, uh, of the evening and mornings which was to- told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision and protect it. You're not going to share it right now. In fact, he didn't share it for about 12 years. But protect it, preserve it. You're going to communicate it later, which he did to us. And then look at the reaction. There's a number of reactions that Daniel has. First of all, it says, I, Daniel, fainted and was sick. Because he knew the suffering that was going to be upon his people. He got that much out of that vision that there was going to be great suffering by this little horn. He was sick. And I think to myself, do we get sick? Do we get troubled? Look at chapter 7, verse 20. You don't have to turn there. It says this, my thoughts greatly troubled me. In other words, when he got the dream, when he got the vision, both 7 and (coughs) 8, he basically said this, and something happened in my inner man. And I believe as it pertains to prophecy, as we know that that judgment day is coming and hell is real, and Jesus Christ comes and will judge this earth, there should be even an emotional reaction that happens. Not just, oh, now I know a little bit more about the Antichrist. He was emotionally fainted, sick, troubled, greatly troubled. But look at the second part of verse 27. But afterwards I arose and went about about the king's business. It didn't stop him... From accomplishing what God had for him today. That's a confident reaction. Though verse the second third part of verse 27 says, I was astonished, I was appalled by the vision. And he was fearful and yet still able to accomplish what God had for him today. It's like the Thessalonians Thessalonians church. They learned about the second coming and then they were like selling their stuff and not working. And what did Paul say? If you don't work, you don't. Hey, listen, just because you know truth doesn't stop you from doing what God wants you to do today. Keep looking up, but just keep looking up and working. (laughs) And then the very final thing, but no one understood it. I think of Romans chapter 10, where Paul says, how then shall they call on him in whom they shall not, have not believed? And how shall they believe in him on whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And here's the point of saying, and they didn't understand. And even when they, he shared it, apparently he shared it, and they didn't understand. And that's why this world needs us. Because we have the truth, and we understand the truth, and the question is, are we sharing the truth? See, this is the evangelistic reaction, but no one understood it. Well, sure, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are spiritually discerned. But you know what? We who have the truth need to be sharing with those who don't understand the truth. Do you understand that? Do you understand how much you have in the book if you're a christian and you understand it and are you willing to share it because i think sometimes we just look and, and it's like oh this is great man i'm really growing this is this is fantastic you mean this has all been happening for the last two thousand but there are people who you work with and your family with and your friends with have no idea they just think this world is chaotic out of control and we need to say you know what it is chaotic out of control and it's all part of god's plan And it's all coming to an end. And the center person is Jesus Christ. It's Jesus Christ. And so whereas it looks like just total chaos, no, no, it's constructive chaos. It is all moving and people need to hear that because they don't understand. But we have the truth and we need to get to them and not think somehow, you know what? Oh, I'm just going to bother them and maybe offend them. Offend them. Because if they don't understand the truth, if they never receive Christ, what awaits them is torment and hell. We need to be bold. We need to be bold to present the truth because people don't understand. Are you willing to share? I trust. I trust that as you study prophecy, that you learn, grow, become convicted, and then become bold. And that you're willing to share because people need the truth. Let's stand as we close. We're going to sing. I'd really encourage you to maybe read through chapter 8 again. I, I know I, I, I kind of feel like I've just backed the uh, 10 ton dump truck up and just kind of threw it out at you. But again, it is important stuff. Uh, let me give you the uh, next week. We're going to be in chapter 9, and we can slow right down. I, I wanted to get through chapter 8 in one week. But chapter nine, the first part is a prayer that Daniel is praying that I think is representative of why he was sent to the lion's den. It's the same time frame, first year of Darius. So I'd encourage you as you come maybe next week to have read the first part, the first nineteen verses, I believe, of Daniel chapter nine. And then after Daniel Chine, you get the most important part of all of Old Testament prophecy called The Seventy Weeks of Daniel. That's the second part of 9. And again, we're going to go very slow through that and not be in a major rush. But again, I would encourage you to read Daniel chapter 9. Father, again, we thank you for your word. And though it's been a lot of information, I pray that you would hit our hearts to know that we would be absolutely convicted and committed to the fact that you have everything under control. And that this world is ticking along exactly how you have pre-planned it. And Father, I pray especially that as we have hope and peace, that we would be bold to share with our neighbors and friends. Because apparently we are in the final moments of history before your return. And Father, I just ask that you would give us wisdom and opportunity to share your truth. In Christ's name, amen.